Good morning. So, quick question. Hands up if you know what Spotify is. Do we all know what? Yeah, we all know. Okay, good. I didn't want to make assumptions. Um, but um, so, in preparation for this talk on Ezra 7, um, and we're coming back to this theme, this overarching theme across the books of Ezra and Nehemiah on, uh, on renew, this kind of thing about this exiled nation coming back, and what does it look like to step into renewal? And I was, um, I've got this playlist on Spotify, and I've got a few playlists, but this one in particular, I've, I've named it One Time Entry, so that, because there's certain people that I really like, and I could easily fill uh, a, um, a playlist with uh, just a, a smattering of artists, right, or um, whatever. But, um, and so I did this so that I could only just pick my favorite song from each particular person, right? And so, um, and just to give you context, my taste in music is, uh, leave, maybe leaves a lot to be desired, I don't know, maybe a bit dated. Um, and uh, to put it into context, um, anyone under 50 probably wouldn't recognize half the music on there. Like, that's kind of where I, uh, I go to. And so I was listening to this, um, this uh, playlist, and this song came up by a group called the Black Eyed Peas. Oh, there might be a little picture. There you go. Um, oh, right, it's this side. So, uh, ta-da. So, um, the Black Eyed Peas, right? And, um, and I, was, I was quite impressed. I was like, ah, oh, I forgot I put that on there. Um, and they, they, there was a song called Where Is The Love, right? Now, at this time, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm pretty hip and trendy, right? Like, uh, until I realized it was released in 2003, and most of the young people that I work with, if not all of them, weren't even born then, and that really, that really gutted me to the core, right? And, um, and so, so, yeah, so that kind of hurt. And if um, you haven't heard the song, you don't know it, I recommend go have a little listen to it when you get in, um, and you'll be able to kind of maybe grasp a little bit of the context of what, um, what I was drawing out of it. And if you're at home and you're, and you're um, watching this on rerun, then you can pause right now and then come back. And we're still here. Fantastic. And you can get even more context. So the wonders of technology, like we never even left. Isn't it wonderful? Um, but in the, um, I was listening to it. And the song, just to give you context, is all about seeing, wow, look at all this stuff in the world. Look at what's wrong with the world that isn't how it should be. Um, and it's kind of a response to that. And, there's, um, and funny enough, they remade this just only a couple of years ago. They redid it. And you think, wow, that's probably because the stuff that was wrong then hasn't really changed. Like it's still wrong now. There's still the same injustices and things that aren't, aren't as they should be, as we dream of them being. And um, it's when the chorus kicked in, there's this wonderful line um, that says, uh, where is it? Uh, can, can you practice what you preach and would you turn the other cheek? And I was really struck by that. Can you practice what you preach. Now, it's kind of a, a very old age saying, can you practice what you preach? And I thought, what would it look like if we did all actually practice what we preached? Well, it, dep- well, it depends. Maybe there's some people who preach things that maybe you think, actually, that wouldn't be that good. But in an ideal world, if we all practiced what we preached, then you'd think the world would be a much, much better place, right? And then I was sort of challenged again as I thought, what if I flip that on its head? What if I could, as someone who has a real privilege and a blessing and trusted um, to come and speak to people at church, which is a real honor, it really is an honor to be able to do that um, and to be trusted with that, what if I could only preach what I actually practiced, right? Let's flip that on its head. If I was only allowed to preach what I actually practiced, would I ever be allowed to preach again? Like, would I have anything worth saying? I don't really know. But have a think for a second. 
just as an individual. Actually, if I was only allowed to preach or tell, when I say preach, maybe just how you t- what you tell to other people in your communities, in your friendship groups, at school or whatever, if you could only preach what you actually practiced, what could you actually tell people? What would that really look like? Let's just think for a second about our vision statement for church, um, which um, I'm, I'm sure many of you know, is uh, that we are a family of God sharing his heart for seeking the lost, growing the found, and transforming our communities. A family of God sharing his heart for seeking the lost, growing the found, and transforming our communities. That's what we preach. Do we really, really practice that? And this is not a thing to condemn. This is not a a thing where I'm telling you guys, you need to buck up your ideas. This is not a ball and chain kind of thing that I'm trying to latch onto you guys, not at all. I certainly fall short. We all fall short of God's glory and where, where God desires us to be. But thankfully we have Jesus, a gracious God. And so even though we fall short, God knows what he's working with. Thank the Lord that he knows what he's working with. And yet, what we've just read in that passage is about a man, and we're going to go into it in Ezra 7, a man that didn't just practice what he preached, because it can be quite easy to, um, to uh, go from teach, or I study it, I can see what the word says, and go, I can tell you guys about it, and skip out the middleman. But this is a man who lived what he'd studied, and then passed that on. He really preached what he'd practiced first. So here's just a quick recap, because we're coming in a little bit cold after the kind of Easter season. We had, um, we kind of got from Ezra 1 to 6, and we had this, um, this story that took off with um, all the way back when the Babylonians had taken the rest of the Israelites off to Babylonia, and, uh, and they'd been in exile for about 70 years, uh, and then eventually the Persians had come along, and they conquered the Babylonians, and then it was that Cyrus, King Cyrus, that was moved, his heart was moved by God to send them back, send them back home, and so they could resettle in the land to build a temple that they could pray for the, the, uh, the Persian kings, right? And so they'd come back, they'd settled, and but there were people there that, were, that, that had settled in the land, or the, the kind of, that were left, Samaritans and other people, um, and so they, they found a lot of opposition and people trying to scupper their plans, and there were points where they got distracted, and they weren't prioritizing right, and then these other prophets had to come in, um, Haggai and Zechariah, and uh, funnily enough, normally when they heard prophets, they kind of ignored them, that was kind of the general gist, but these two prophets, after all that happened, they said, guys, where's your priorities at? And they went, oh yeah, you're right, they actually listened, bucked up their ideas, and actually got the temple built, like, wow, finally, right? It's all going the right way. And yet even when the temple was built, um, even when the foundations were built, you could see it wasn't the same as what it was. And so there was this kind of disparity from what they remembered to where they were now. And so that was kind of the end of chapter 6, where they'd arrived at, and then now we're on chapter 7. It's kind of an, about a 60-year gap. And in that, if for historical context, that gap between chapter 6 and 7 is where you can squeeze the story of Esther that we studied not long ago. That's where it kind of fits in in the timeline. So we arrive at chapter 7. And if you remember, Zerubbabel was the kind of the main figurehead that went back with the first uh, remnant, head, remnant heading back to Jerusalem. And now we have the second protagonist of the Ezra-Nehemiah series uh, coming in, Ezra himself. Now, 
um, the question is, I suppose, to start with, why were they sending someone else back uh, again? What was all that about? And there's probably two reasons that you can kind of draw from the passage um, that we've just read. Uh, number one, um, the hand of God had moved uh, the king's heart, the Persian king's heart. So you can see from uh, verse um, 27, you can see um, it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor um, to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. It's echoes again of uh, chapter 1, where we see the um, God of Israel move Cyrus's heart. We see again, all these things are part of God's overarching plan. He's moving things into action. Um, but also, there's the kind of other caveat to it, where we know that the Persians of the time, they would do this with a lot of nations, where they would send people back to pray to their gods for them. And so, um, if you check out um, verse 23, then you can see um, the second half of verse 23. Um, Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? That's the king speaking in his letter. Why should there be wrath? Go back, pray, fill the temple, do all these things. Because basically, I want you to pray for us. We want to almost cover all bases. So we can see there was an agenda, but actually God was undergirding it. He was the one moving the king's heart for these things to happen. And you can tell um, that Ezra was clearly trusted with a lot because he was sent back. You can see again in the king's letter, you can see in verses 14 to 17, you can see lots of things that he was saying, give them freely everything they'll need to go back for the temple. And even in verse 18, so this is once they've used up all the stuff, verse 18 says, oh, and by the way, you and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Like they had surplus. Do what you want with it. As long as you get my plan sorted, I want you to make sure you guys are praying for me at the temple. Do what you want with the rest of the stuff. So he was clearly a man of integrity and well trusted um, in, in the eyes of the Persian um, royalty. But what about Ezra himself specifically? He, I mean, if you, you can see when Steve read, read out the Bible passage, there was a lot of names that were kind of skipped out there, um, probably hard to pronounce. But um, the thing was, that showed his credentials. He was a scholarly man in intellect, but he was also a priest from the right line of Aaron. And again, as we saw, he was trusted. Um, but if you go back to verse 6 as well, the king granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. He was a trusted man, a man of integrity. But also as well, he had wisdom. Yes, he was a scholarly man. He had knowledge and intellect, but he had wisdom to go with it. Do you know there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is knowing stuff. Wisdom is how do I apply this and live this out? And so you can see in verse 25, the king in his letter says, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to the people of trans-Euphrates. So the king saw, the king saw the wisdom that he had and the hand of God was on him in the midst of it. But I think there's one overarching thing we want to catch as well about Ezra. The one thing, it was the last verse that, um, that Steve read to us. So if you go to Ezra 7 verse 10, This is what it says of Ezra. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And 
I just want to read it to you in the message version as well, because it kind of separates it a little bit more clearly for us. Ezra had committed himself to the stud. I'm sorry. Uh, Ezra had committed himself to studying the revelation of God, to living it, and to teaching Israel to live its truths and ways. Did you catch the three things? Ezra had committed himself to studying the revelation of God, to living it, and to teaching Israel to live its truth and ways. And that order, I think, is very purposeful. It's study, it's live it, it's teach it. There's no, there's no point where you see, sometimes we can be guilty of, I've no doubt at some point I've been guilty of this myself. You study it, and then yes, I know how to teach it. That's something I feel fairly competent with at different points. But actually, have I missed the middleman? Am I living it before I go and teach it? Is my, are my actions disassociated from, oh, sorry, is my intellect disassociated from my actions? Have I linked the two up by actually applying it and living it in my life? And it's clear that Ezra was that man who connected his intellect with his wisdom, lived it out, and then had a gift in showing it to the people. And again, I think there's a repercussion now that you see in three different occasions it mentions throughout the passage about the hand of God being on Ezra. And I don't think that's a coincidence. He read it, he studied it, he lived it, and he taught it. And as well, it might be a little bit... um, uh, Um, what's the word, lightly brushing over what Ezra actually did, which is why we might have to skip to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. And with Nehemiah chapter 8, I know I'm skipping ahead just a little bit at this point, but um, we don't get much information as to what Ezra actually did at this point in terms of what he taught or how he taught. Um, And so when we go to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, what we get is a retrospective viewpoint about what Ezra actually did. So I'm just going to read you a few verses if you want to follow, follow along, or you can just listen, it's fine. Um, and I'm, I'll, read from, I'll read from verse 4. So chapter 8, verse 4, and this is Ezra reads the law. This is the kind of uh, the title that this chapter has. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, uh, oh grief, Matahiah, Shema, this is why he skipped all these names, yeah. Uh, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Mesiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Z- steady, Z- Zechariah, and Meshulam. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, sh- I should have started verse 5. Um, Ezra opened the book. Yeah. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And he opened it. The people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down again and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law. Did you catch that? Instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. 
These people who had been stuck in an exiled nation for 70 years, and well, long before, they'd come back. And actually, there's probably been a point they've been encultured in other ways where they've been. They've come back, they've had opposition, all these things. They weren't prioritizing God in the way they should. Actually, is there a sense here that maybe they had the word and they had the law, but did they really grasp what God was trying to say to them through it? Actually, I'd probably say no. This is where the hand of God comes in, moves the Persian king's heart to go, Ezra, I'm sending you back. This wise, scholarly, intellectual man that doesn't just know it, but he lives and breathes it. So that when you go, you're not just going to teach it and, not, and disassociate your intellect from your actions, but what you're going to do, you are going to allow them to see with clarity. It's interesting, this idea about the, the TV screen and wiping it away so you can see with clarity. Actually, were these people really grasping what God was saying through his word? And it's just really clear. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Probably Ezra's greatest skill, bringing clarity to God's word. What the people needed at the time. And you know, it's probably fair to say if you remember back when the, the foundations of the temple were being built and the people, some were rejoicing, but some were mourning and crying and there was this kind of reminiscing about the old Israel. Well, actually, maybe that was God's way of saying, you know what, I get you've come back to the land and I was calling you back there. And yes, you've called to build a temple, but actually, it's not about the land. It's not about the building. Actually, it's about God's word. It's about the word I'm giving you, the way I'm trying to speak to you in a personal way, the way I want to see obedience. I want you to see with clarity that you might follow my ways and live as I desire you to live. So how does this apply to us? Well, you can imagine we're all desperate to be back in church in some way um, or another. Um, and, and when the day we can all crowd back in, sing our hearts out to Jesus, um, it'd probably take the roof off. You probably want some girders or something to hold the place up because it's going be, to be epic, I've no doubt. But, and it will be a time of celebration and a time of praise. But actually, like the Israels had to step back into renewal, actually, if we want to step back into renewal as well when we come out of this exile period, actually, that takes a whole life shift. A whole life shift. It did for Israel and it will do for us as well. If we don't want to go back to maybe the old way we did things. Actually, the, we, we could probably see that there were ways that actually needed to change. And now we have the opportunity to step into something new. But it takes a whole uh, life shift. Uh, as Israel allowed God, his hidden hand, to kind of move things. Actually, we need to allow God to take his hidden hand and move things now in the same way. And I'm just thankful. It's a great opportunity today to thank those within the church who do uh, preach. I've been blessed by the people who've come and preached um, and brought clarity to me about what God's word says. That I can be challenged now and, and convicted about, do you know what? I, I'm not living what I'm studying. I need to change, you know? Something has to change for me to step into a better version of the me that God has in store. So I just want to draw back as we kind of wind up to um, our vision statement again. We're a family of God seeking his heart, sorry, sharing his heart for seeking the lost, growing the found, and transforming 
our communities. Where is it for us, personally? Maybe it's one of those things in terms of church. Maybe we have something different, personally. But where is it that we study it, we know it, we've got the head knowledge, we have the intellect, and yet, and we can tell people about it, left, right, and center, and yet there's something in the middle missing, where it's our intellect is disassociated from our actions. In reading from um, a commentary, I, I, I was reading one of these commentaries on Ezra 710, and there was this lovely phrase that said, study was saved from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. I just love that. May I be saved from unreality and from uncertainty and from insincerity and shallowness. Maybe that's our prayer for today, to be saved from those things. Just one story to leave you with. You, some of you may know I've um, been on this Arrow course, which is a wonderful kind of leadership thing um, that's just been a real blessing in terms of the teaching and the input and all these other things. But one lovely thing that I've been able to be a part of is like a peer cell group, which is like out of all the people that are part of this group, there's four of us that connect on a semi-regular basis um, and kind of journey through the whole experience together. And, um, and interestingly, every um, week of Arrow, they have one day just on evangelism, right? And... Um, and interestingly, so I've had two residentials and there's been one day on each of them, just a whole day just on evangelism and what that looks like. And, um, and I'm not the only one that's been convicted, thoroughly convicted in many ways off the back of it. And the four of us, me and my, my little peer cell, um, we said every time we meet, we are going to make, the one thing we will not neglect to talk about is the way that we have intentionally evangelized to someone outside of a work context, that we're not, I don't want to say obligated, we're not obligated in, in that sense, but I hope you understand what I mean when I say that. that, that something that we, where we have been put and been brave enough to go and share the name of Jesus with someone. And that is not something we will neglect uh, when we come and meet together. Like that's accountability right there, right? That we will force ourselves to think, no, I have to, I have to step out and evangelize. Because actually, Part of them, so I keep looking up there because that's where it was before the vision statement. But part of our vision statement is about seeking the lost, right? I'm, I passionately believe the lost need to be sought out, right? And yet, I know that, I can tell you about it, but I had a, this kind of eureka moment, not eureka moment, this kind of penny dropping where I realized, wow, I've actually been falling short on that quite a lot. And so actually, this little group of accountability for me is going to be really important so for me, to make that a priority, that I don't just study, I don't just teach it, but actually I live it. I really step into it. That is one for me. And not just for my peer cell group, I encourage all of you, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable. The more people that bug me on it and say, who have you evangelized to in the last month, the last week, yesterday, whatever. Actually, the more I'm going to, it's not about pressurizing me, but it's the more actually I'm going to have God saying, yeah, Jared, like, are, are you sharing it? Like, how much do you believe that I change lives? You know, how much do you, do you feel convicted that I need to be shared? So I suppose I share that with you because for me, I realized intellect, actions, there was a disconnect. What is it for you guys? It's going to be different, but I just pray, just as we, as we finish, ask the Holy Spirit what it is. He knows. I don't know. I'm, I've got my own things that I'm working on, right? But he knows. And maybe we have just open hearts today to hear what he has to say. So I just want to say one quick prayer as we finish. 
and three statements. And if you can give me a big amen at home in here, a quite uh, COVID-friendly amen, that would be glorious. And so I just, and yeah, I just pray, Holy Spirit, help us study this. We can't do it on our own. Like that, the line of that song, Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. We're not built to do it on our own. Holy Spirit, help us study this. Holy Spirit, help us live this. Holy Spirit, that we might stand in the authority, your authority, to preach this, to tell others about this. In your name, I pray, because we love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.